Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, a few moments ago, I was talking to you about how I Follow came together as a series. Many of us grew up in and out of church, at least, uh, or at least we grew up hearing about church, and we learned a lot of things, some factual, not, some not factual. And even if you grew up in a good church, chances are you heard teaching on this topic one week and teaching on another topic the next week, and you picked up the Christian life, but in, in drips and drabs. You guys are all too young to remember a song by uh, Johnny Cash, but when I, was a real, when I was a little kid, he sang a song called, I Got It One Piece at a Time. And for all of you old people who love Johnny Cash, it's the story of a guy who worked for General Motors. And he was too poor to afford an automobile, so every day he took a part out, you know. And so he had this monstrosity car. He said the title weighed a bunch of pounds, you know. He said, you'll know me when I come through your town. And the chorus always said, I got it one piece at a time. Well, I think about a lot of us who got our faith one piece at a time. And what I wanted to do as leader here, I felt like it's really important for us to go back to the scriptures and to learn what it would really mean to follow Jesus. And I'll tell you one reason why I think it's extremely important. I mean, other than the fact that we, we want to truly follow Jesus. Religion has a way of screwing it up. I mean, if we've learned one thing in 2,000 years, we've learned that religion can screw up any part of the Christian faith. I always think about something that happened right after I got married to Mary Alice. Um, I used to watch television and the movies, and there would be these guys that were sweeping their ladies off their feet with these marvelous gifts. I mean, most of the time, it had to do with what jewelry stores wanted to sell you or what, you know, the stores wanted to sell you. So, you know, and Mary Alice likes simple things. She's not a real frilly, you know, um, I always think to myself, Mary Alice would have been wonderfully happy growing up on a farm because she just loves simple things. And I was always wanting, and she's not a real jewelry person. I was always wanting to buy her this jewelry. And and, and the time came when I kind of thought something was kind of wrong with her because I saw on television, you know, the ladies there were swooning over this ring or these earrings or whatever. So I kind of said to Mary Alice without even saying it plainly, but I sort of said, well, you're supposed to want these things. Don't try that at home, boys. And, uh, boys, don't, don't try that at home. And I never, she said something to me very sweetly one time. It was a question. She said, Mark, do you want to give me what I want or do you want to give me what you want me to want? Now, you know what? I learned real fast. I'm not smart. I didn't come with this stuff preloaded, but I can learn real quickly. But when I think about her question that she asked me when I think I was 21, I think about that in church because, see, so many of us have heard from religion what Jesus is supposed to want. And so I'm not trying to put words in Jesus' mouth, but I think he would, he would ask us today, do you want to give me what I want or do you want to give me what religion wants me to want? And I don't know that it could ever be more important than what we're going to be talking about today. But here's the thing. For those of us who grew up in religion, and we learned a lot of beneficial things, but didn't you suspicion that? 
When you were in religion, didn't you suspicion that a lot of the stuff you were being taught was not what Jesus wanted, but what religion wanted us to want? So that's what this series is about. We're looking at the eight eight key components, the very elementary components of what it means to follow Jesus according to what Jesus wants. Well, last week we looked at the most important thing, which is to know for sure that Jesus has paid for your everlasting life and your membership in God's family. He paid for it when he died on the cross. He secured it when he rose from the grave and he puts a deal on the table that anyone can come. And remember this, a relationship with Jesus is different from any other relationship in the world. Our world is based on performance. You perform, then you're accepted, maybe. But with Jesus, it's totally different. You're accepted just as you are. And now live. Now live as a daughter of God. Live as a son of God. But you're accepted unconditionally. That is what makes the relationship with Jesus so different. And it's one of the things, by the way, that hangs up religion every time. Now, what does he want? What does Jesus want after we are assured that we have a relationship with him? What's job one? Ready? Jesus is getting ready to leave. Gospel of Mark. Here's the short version. Jesus said to the disciples who were the first church, wherever you go in the world, tell everyone the good news. That is job one. Wherever you go, tell everyone the good news. There's the longer version in Matthew. We call this the Great Commission because Jesus said, here it is. Do this. Wherever you go, make disciples of all nations. Look at the next word. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to do whatever I've commanded you. Job one, it's most important to Jesus that we tell others the good news. But it's so rarely done. I mean, here's the thing. Many of us are Christ followers. We've been Christ followers for years. And we know we're saved, but we've never done this job one. We've really never told anyone about Jesus. So I think that begs a question, doesn't it? I mean, if it's job one to Jesus, why are we reluctant to do it? Well, I read a statistic the other day that may give us some clue. Uh, The Barna Group, which has analyzed religious trends in the United States for the last 30 or 35 years or so, released a study just a few weeks ago that said 52% of millennial Christians believe that it is wrong to evangelize. Now, that's a strange thing, isn't it? Because the thing that Jesus said was most important to him, 52% of millennial Christians believe that it's wrong. How did that happen? I'm not exactly sure why that statistic is what it is. And as you'll hear me say in just a moment, I'm not sure it's, I'm not sure it's accurate. But let me just say this. If by evangelizing being wrong, there are people who believe that evangelism is wrong, they would have to believe that there's some other way to get to heaven other than through Jesus. How else could it be wrong? Now, if, if that's the case, what that person is saying is, is several things. Number one, they're saying that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his death is totally unnecessary. In other words, if I should never share my faith just to make sure that it never confronts someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, if I think it's wrong, then I'm saying that his death was absolutely unnecessary. I mean, I, I'm going to have to be prepared when I stand before God to say, that was such a bad decision to have Jesus die on the cross because there were other ways. On top of that, I'm I'm saying that other belief systems are just as effective as Jesus. But the most important thing is I'm calling Jesus a liar. Because in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. 
So if a person says, I believe that evangelism is wrong for any of those three reasons, I am telling you, I just love you enough to tell you, you're flipping God off with both hands. And it's critical that we rethink that. But I'm going to tell you what I do think. I really think that the reason why 52% of millennial Christians believe that evangelism is wrong is I think there's a misunderstanding about what evangelism is. See, I think sometimes if we're not careful, we'll, we'll mistake evangelizing for proselytizing. And how many of us went to college and we heard professors talk about the awful things that were done in the name of Jesus? And we talked about that last week and we said that's not true Christianity. But how many of us have sat in classrooms and we've heard professors talk about the Spanish Inquisition in which so-called Christians came to a people group and said either, either you know, give in and become a Christian or else. And, and I think that's what we hear. We hear about proselytizing. But A, that's not done by real Christians. And secondly, it doesn't make real Christians. But following Jesus is always something that we do from the heart. And we do because we personally believe in Jesus Christ. So let's talk about, just a moment, what evangelism is. The word evangelize comes from two Greek words that are jammed together. There is no V in Greek. So the word is U, or the letter is U. So it's E-U. That's the first word. E-U is the Greek word for good. Uh, take, for instance, the term eulogy. You, good, logos, words. So when, when we die, people say good words about us. They, they give eulogies. Well, it's the same prefix on evangelize. It's you and then angelos. The word angelos means news or message. So consequently, what it means to evangelize somebody is to good news them. Now, how could it be possibly wrong to good news somebody? You see what I'm saying? I think a lot of people who say they believe evangelism is wrong, I don't think they really mean that. I think there's a misunderstanding of what it means to evangelize. There's another reason why many of us are reluctant to share our faith. Jonathan was telling us on the teaching team that before he came to New Spring 10 years ago, he served the staff of a great church in Oklahoma, and he was teaching an evangelism course. And when he asked people why they were reluctant to share the good news, he got several answers. I don't know how. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to get started. Or I'm afraid that someone's going to ask me a question that I don't know the answer to. So if you believe that evangelism is a good thing, but you got stalled because of one of those four things, well, I have good news for you. Because Jesus gave us a way for us to share the good news by acting out the story. I think he knew we'd have a hard time finding the words right up front. So he said, okay, here's job one. Here's the first thing. The first time you're ever going to tell the story of the gospel, you're going to act it out. Now, what is the gospel? This is really important because we've got a lot of teaching in, in so-called Christianity today that adds a lot of stuff to the gospel. I remember reading a book called The Hole in the Gospel and, and people saying, oh, you need to give the whole gospel. And a lot of times what's happening is these guys and gals who are writing these books are inserting works into salvation, which that'll, that, that'll just negate salvation completely. What is the gospel? Let me show you. In the book of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, I declare to you the gospel by which you are saved. So Paul is saying, here is the gospel. That, three things, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. If anybody adds anything to your gospel, they just screwed it up and negated it. That is the gospel. That Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and then he rose from the grave. Now, 
The first opportunity that you have to share the gospel is what we call baptism. How do I know? Well, I know that for a lot of reasons, but I want you to look at Romans 6, 4, and I want you to think about that in juxtaposition to what we just saw about what the gospel is. Look at this. Paul said, we died. We didn't really die physically, did we? So he's talking about something else. We died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of God, now we also may be raised to live new lives. So that's what baptism is. It is the picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us. You just saw, all weekend long we're having watermark. I wish you could see all the testimonies from all the services. But what you saw is you saw people go under the water showing death and burial and come up out of the water showing resurrection. Now what are we saying when we're baptized? Two very important things. You're saying, I identify with Jesus. My hope is Jesus. Now here's the thing. If I see a baptism, I know the person doesn't follow Buddha because every time I see Buddha, he's just sitting and he needs exercise from what I've seen. No disrespect. Just, but, I mean, that's the thing. We're not asked to sit. We're not, I mean, here's, there is only one person who died, who was buried, and rose again. A lot of people died and were buried, but only one person rose again. So if I see you baptized, I know who you follow. And it's your way of saying, I want everybody to know I identify with Jesus Christ. But there's something that's very beautiful also, because as we just saw in the book of Romans, when a person is baptized, they're saying the old me is gone and a new me is alive in Jesus Christ. There's the story. Some of you have heard about St. Augustine or St. Augustine, depending upon how you pronounce it. This is many, many hundreds of years ago. But before he was saved, Augustine lived a very wicked life. And he accepted Christ, and it changed his life. And one day he was walking down the street. Before he had been a Christian, he cavorted with prostitutes. And a prostitute who had kind of been a mistress of his saw him walking down the street as they were passing each other. And she expected him to say hello, but he just kept right on walking. She thought maybe he didn't recognize her. So she called out to him, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. He said, but it's no longer Augustine. And, and that's, I think, what baptism is saying, is that the person that I used to be is not here anymore, and I've become a new person alive in Jesus Christ. Baptism was meant to be that simple. You read about the first church service at Pentecost in the book of Acts. The Bible says those people who accepted what Peter said were baptized. That's how, how simple it was meant to be. But as I said a few moments ago, you give religion time and religion can screw up anything. It's like, you know, the, 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 the following Jesus, as you're going to see week after week, is really a very simple, beautiful, organic thing. But religion, it, it tends to take out the spiritual, organic nature of it, and it starts adding. Now, in the first century, it was as simple as that. When a person accepted Christ, they were baptized as a symbol of their faith. But by the third century, there started to be people in religion that started putting a toxic viewpoint in it. And it was like this. You have to be baptized in order to be saved. Ooh, that's not the gospel. We just saw the gospel. Jesus died, buried, rose again. Whenever you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are born again. But there were those who said it's not enough. But because, because you have to be baptized. Well... 99% of the verses in the Bible that tell us how to be saved don't even mention baptism. But there were those who taught that. And then one thing led to another. 
if you believe that you have to be baptized in order to go to heaven, what about kids? Now, up until that point, Old Testament and New, there was a clear understanding that children are covered by the grace of God until they're old enough to understand and make their own decision. You know, and, but there was this idea, well, like, okay, if you have to be baptized to go to heaven, maybe we better start baptizing our kids. Do you realize there is no infant baptism in the Bible any place? And then the, the, the religion had to do something else because all of a sudden you had all these thousands of people who were baptized as babies who had no interest in Christ. And so religion had to put adapter kits on that and say, well, I guess you have to like be confirmed and all this. And there's some good in some of those things, but it's just religion messing up what God intended to be so simple and organic. And here we are today in 2020, all these years later, and some of us are still dealing with that confusion today. And you know what? Here's the deal. I don't, I don't think this would be a new spring thing, but it might be. Somebody could be pushing back against this and say, well, well my tradition and my culture in the church I was raised in, I'm so respectful of that. I can't even begin to tell you how respectful I am of that, but I'm going to love you enough to tell you something. Man-made religion has zero currency in heaven. Could I say that one more time? You say, well, this is, I mean, I, could, I grew up Baptist, and there was stuff I learned that wasn't quite right. But I can't go before God and say, God, this is how I was taught. And God's like, that stuff has zero currency up here. Your money's no good here. So, but I do want to say this. It doesn't mean that we disrespect our upbringing. You, you heard this so eloquently in the baptism testimony today where our parents were just doing what they were taught. And, and they were doing what they were doing from their heart to dedicate us. But I just want to make it clear. And God will honor their hearts. But it doesn't mean that what happened to us when we were infants, that it's actually baptism. Well, that's the first mess up that religion did. But let me tell you about the second mess up. Because there were people like me who stood back and said, well, if you don't have to be baptized to be saved, and there's all this religious stuff, maybe baptism's not very important. I mean, after all, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. What's the deal about getting wet? You know, what's the deal about going underwater and coming up out of the water? If it doesn't really save me, is it really important? And maybe the question could be asked, as I've already shared with you, how challenging it's been to get following Jesus into eight weeks. It could be that someone is saying, why does it take up a week of our series? And why is it number two? Why does it occur so early in the Christian faith? Let's go to the Bible. Because we want what we believe to be real. I want to give you six quick facts about baptism in the Bible. Here's number one. You already know this. It's important to Jesus. If it, I can't say, is it important? Because I know it's important to Jesus. When Jesus left town, he gave us three things to do. One of them is baptism. So, and I also read that everyone in the early church who accepted Christ immediately was baptized. So it's important to Jesus. Number two, it's your first and most powerful opportunity to share the good news of Jesus. There's something about, you saw, you, did you see those baptisms today? Didn't it do something in your heart and life when you heard those stories? Didn't it do something in you when you saw those courageous people take that step? I mean, there's something about that that says, even I've already been baptized, but I'm celebrating with them. It is your first and most powerful opportunity to share the good news of Jesus. Number three, it was always the first step after salvation. When I hear that statement, there are two things that jump off the page to me. The first one is priority. 
Because there are some who say, well, is it really that important? Well, when I study the scriptures, and it's the first thing that Christ followers did after they were saved, I understand there's a priority to baptism. And secondly, there's an order to baptism. You know, in baseball, no matter how hard you hit the ball, you have to go to first base first. I mean, if you hit the ball, you can, you can hit it all the way to the wall. But if you go to third base first, you're in kind of a tough situation. And there's an order to it. And, and here's the thing. If in our following Jesus, after we are truly saved, we say, oh, don't worry about baptism. I'll get to that someday. What, what we don't understand, and I'll, I'll kind of share my own story in just a minute, is that there's a, there's a seizing up. There is a freezing up of our spiritual walk because basically we're not recognizing the fact this is so important to Jesus. Here's the fourth thing. Baptism is a personal thing between you and Jesus. As pastor of this church for 35 years, as pastor for 44 years, I've shared with people that they not need to follow Jesus in baptism. I've watched this sort of human thing because a lot of people at that point will say, well, you're saying I have to be baptized to be in your church. They, they want to reduce it to a church policy because it's a lot easier, frankly, than having to realize that this is something between them and Jesus. We never, first of all, we try never to talk anybody into coming to New Spring. You should only come to New Spring if you feel God leading you. So we never talk anybody into doing that. We never want anybody to do anything just for New Spring Church. What we want for all, all of us, starting with me, is to truly follow Jesus. I know this is not a perfect comparison. But baptism, as, as the first and most important step after we get saved, is a lot like a wedding ring. I have my wedding ring. I'm wearing it today. I got to take it to the shop because it's broken. I don't know if you can see that or not. I got to take it back and get it soldered. But I received this ring on June 11, 1977, on the day that Mary Alice put it on my finger when we got married. Now, here's the thing I just took it off. Am I still married? Could I have been married without a wedding ring? Yeah. Just like a person could say, well, I can be saved without following Jesus in baptism. But here's the thing. While I don't have to wear my wedding ring to be married, I'm happy to wear it because it identifies me with Mary Alice, and it's a constant reminder to me of the vows that I took that day. I mean, there are times when I'm across the country from her, and I look down at that ring on my finger, and it tells a story. It tells the story of the woman I'm in love with. It tells the story of the reality that I'm not the same as I was before June 11, 1977. It also tells me and the rest of the world that I'm spoken for and committed, and for that reason, I love to wear it. Now, I want you to work with me for a second. You got a friend, and he's engaged, or getting engaged to a, a lady. And you don't know her, you just know him, he's your friend. And um, he picks out a beautiful ring for her. Now, suppose she says to him, well, I will marry you, but I won't wear your ring. I can be married without wearing your ring, so there, take it or leave it. Let me ask you a question. Just, just, you don't have to answer. Just yourself. What would you tell him? What advice would you give him? If a woman said, I'll marry you, but I'm not going to wear your ring, I'll just leave it there. Here's number five. Baptism can only come after salvation. It's a testimony. In other words, if you went to the courthouse today or tomorrow when it's open and you were called to give testimony and you started telling about something that happened and the attorney said, well, when did this happen? You said, well, it hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen tomorrow. Either the judge or the attorney would stop you and say, you can't give testimony. Something hasn't happened yet. And, and here's the thing. There, there are a lot of people who have some kind of 
baptism early, and then later on, they understand the gospel and they accept Christ. And so they say, well, I've been saved, and oh yeah, I've been baptized back here. But baptism was always meant to be a testimony of what has happened in our lives. We don't wear wedding rings before we get married. That'd be kind of cheesy because we'd be giving testimony of something that hasn't happened yet. Would you allow me to tell you my story? Because I had to wrestle with this. When I was about five or six years old, I was playing in the living room with some little plastic figurines, and my dad and mom wanted to talk to me about accepting Christ, and their intentions were good. My problem, I was not the most spiritual child in the world. And so dad said, put your toys down, come over here and listen to me. And I dutifully did. And he went through the gospel with me, and he said, wouldn't you like to accept Jesus? And I, and I, 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 I was trying to please my dad. And so I prayed. And dad said, oh, my dad was my pastor. He said, the next day, we were in a Baptist church, and we had you know, aisles that people walked down to make decisions. He said, at the end of the service, you'll come forward. And he said, then after that, we'll baptize you. So I, I did. I went down, prayed with my dad. They took me back to the baptistry, put the robe on me and stuff, and baptized me and came up out of the water. I had no idea. I didn't understand. But by the time I turned eight, I understood it. And I got to tell you something. I was not the best kid in the world. I'll tell you that for a reason. I, I, when, in, the, in my dad's church, we had a man in our church when I was a kid. He kind of left the church about eight or, when I was about eight or nine years old. He, he operated heavy equipment outside. And unfortunately, um, he got melanoma and it was too late and he'd gone all through his body. But he did come back to church. And by the time he came back to church, I was in my early 20s and I was associate pastor. I'd come back to my home church for a few years. And he was so delighted to see me preach. He loved me. I mean, if I was preaching, he'd be there on the front row seat. So as he got closer and closer to death, I went to see him a lot. And so I think it was a day or so before he died, I went to his house and I wanted to see Ray. And his wife said, well, he's not conscious. He hadn't been conscious for a while. He won't even know you're there. And she said, well, come on back. You can have a prayer with him. So I went back and I had a prayer with Ray. And all of a sudden... He just came to, sat bolt upright on the bed, looked at me and said, Mark, when you were a little kid, you were the worst kid I ever saw in my life. <laughs> Fell back on the bed, went back into unconsciousness, died the next day. Those are last words. They'll stand up in a court of law. So now I'm eight years old. I'm on the playground in my school, Forest Hill Elementary in Fort Worth, Texas. I stopped to get a drink at the water fountain. I remember the sermon my dad had preached the day before. He said, if you'll ask Jesus, he'll forgive you. Everything you ever did, I had a big rap sheet at eight years old. I bowed over the water fountain that day and gave my heart and life to Jesus Christ. But I didn't tell anybody. It was between me and God. Now, I didn't expect to have any problem. And after all, you know, I can't go down to the church and say, well, I need to be baptized because everybody's like, he's the preacher's kid. And everybody knows he's been saved. He's saved when he was five or six. So now this is grinding on me. Nobody ever talked to me about it. never talked to anybody. I never told my parents when I got saved. I just, it just grinded on me. I'd be in a church service and like the Holy Spirit would say, you and I have an issue. And I'm like, it's not big. I know I'm saved. Now, here's the thing, New Spring. I want to tell you something. My Christian life kind of seized up at that moment because, see, I'm out of order. It's not that I didn't do some good things during that time, but I'm like stopped a little bit. And I'm ashamed to say that year by year went by, and now I'm 14 years old. 
I mean, I had been saved for six years, but I've never said anything to anybody. And we were not in a big church. It wasn't a church like New Spring. It was like a church of about 150, 175 people. And all of us tough guys, we sat in the back pew and just showed our toughness by acting like we weren't interested in what was going on. But in those days, it was a Baptist church. As I said, people walked forward and made decisions. That's how you did it. And so all this time, while I'm sitting back there in the back seat, the Holy Spirit is saying, you need to get this right. And I'll never forget as long as I live. You know, I'd put, this is crazy. I was sitting on the end. I'd put my foot out in the aisle, and then I'd bring it back. I'd put it out. It was the only time I ever did a Texas two-step. I, <laughs> and I'll never forget the day I put my foot in the aisle and started walking. And I went forward and I said, Dad, I need to get my baptism on the right side of my salvation. Now, I thought I was the only one dealing with that. When my dad announced what had happened right behind me, my best friend came. My Sunday school teacher came that day. I think there were like 21 people who came forward and said, we need to get our baptism on the right side of our salvation. See, baptism is always something that comes after your salvation because it's a testimony. It can, by, de- it can by definition, only come after. Number six, baptism was given to us as a powerful personal assurance. Here's what would be interesting. I, I would love to do this someday, and with all the thousands who attend New Spring, I don't guess we'll ever do it until we get to heaven. I would love to hear how you came to faith, how you came to faith in Jesus. Because salvation is always the same, but our journey to faith is always different. Billy Graham used to preach there's a mystery to the gospel. And here's what I think would be interesting. There are probably two primary categories. For some of you listening to me today, the gospel came like a light switch, or faith came like a light switch. You heard the message. You got it all at one time, made your decision, never been a question about it. It came like a light switch. But for some of us, it came like the dawn. It was very gradual. And we don't, we don't exactly know the exact moment when we crossed that line, but we know we did. The beautiful thing about baptism is it gives us something tangible to say, I know that by this point, I have accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I have gone public with it. There's an interesting verse in 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, baptism does now also save you from inward questionings and fears by providing you with the answer. That's an interesting word. The answer of a good conscience before God. Now, that Greek word, if you were to go into the text, you would find that Greek word is a paratima. It's an interesting word. In the Roman world, there would be gray areas sometimes. And the Roman Senate would launch an investigation, kind of like our Senates do today, except they actually came up with answers. So here's what would happen. There would be a report given, and that report was the irperitema. In other words, it would say there was a gray area here, but we've settled it, and here is the answer. And that's the word that the Bible uses for baptism. So I'm going to ask you today, you don't have to answer me, but you do have to answer in your own heart. If you've accepted Jesus Christ and your Lord and Savior, have you been baptized in a way that is the currency of heaven? Not in religion, but as far as the currency of heaven goes. Because... That's your first opportunity and most powerful opportunity to do the thing that is so important to Jesus, job one, and that is sharing your faith and going public with your faith. But let's say that you have, and you say, Mark, I've already done that, but I have a hard time sharing my faith with someone else. Let me give you four things, and I'm going to be through today. Here is the first one. Don't let it be overcomplicated or intimidating. It's good news. So you're sharing good news. If you've received the good news of Jesus Christ, you can share the good news with someone else. You don't have to be eloquent. Just tell the good news. 
I was reading a story of a pastor who was making a hospital visit, and he said as he was walking down the hall to the room he was going to visit, a man suddenly burst out of another room, and he started saying to anybody who would listen, she's going to live, she's going to live. He said, I didn't know who, don't know who she was, I just know she's going to live, and this guy just got good news. And you know, I think when it comes to sharing our faith, it is that I'm going to live, I'm going to live forever, and we share the good news. Number two. New Spring is your partner. Years ago, I did a message called the two eyes of the church. Eyes as in the letter I, invest and invite. For all of us who say, well, Mark, I think I would struggle to sit down with someone and lead them to Christ. One of the greatest opportunities you have is simply to invite that person to be part of New Spring Church. Let's come, because here's the thing. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if a person hears the word of God, then God will cause faith to arise in their hearts. Many of us have friends who are skeptics. I do. It is interesting when Jesus started calling the disciples, how that they started finding each other. I mean, you know, Andrew found Peter. And then along comes Philip. And Philip's like, hey, my brother Nathaniel needs this. But Nathaniel is a skeptic. Look at this. Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathanael. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. Come and see. And guys, I'll just tell you something. God is changing people every week. This story has been replicated by the thousands of people who might have been a little reluctant to know how to share their faith who just said, come to New Spring with me. Thinking about a story that happened right there. And a guy in our church, he came to faith in Jesus Christ, and he just started inviting all his friends. So he invited a couple to come with him one day. And I just finished speaking. I think I was standing right about here. We used to have steps here. And so as I was finishing this message, the new springer called out to me, Mark, I want you to come meet my friends. And I remember he introduced me to Tony and his wife. Now, you all are all too young to know what I'm talking about. Tony looked just like Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead. <laughs> I told you all were too young. This is a rock group back in the 60s and 70s. So all you deadheads know who I'm talking about. But anyway, he said, I, I, he, in the New Spring, he said, come over and meet Tony and his wife. Tony had never been to church in his life, not even for a funeral. He had been in the aerospace industry, been part about everything we shot in the space. He's probably about late 40s. And when I came over to talk to him, he said, here's what he said. This is the first thing he said to me. I don't know about this Jesus dude, but I like listening to you talk. <laughs> and he kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. And I remember when he accepted Christ. I don't usually baptize, but I baptized Tony. One day he and I went to Red Lobster to eat lunch. And he said, you know, I'm just not able to swallow things as well as I used to. And he said, I'm going to have that checked out. It turned out he had esophageal cancer. And he died a year later, and I was with him the day before he died. And I want to tell you something. His faith was so much bigger than mine. And yet he came just a short time before because a new springer loved him enough to say, come and see. And he started off by saying, I don't know about this Jesus dude, but I like listening to you talk. And when he died, I was so envious of his faith. I'm kind of reluctant to tell you something. I say this to our staff all the time, but I'll explain why in a second I'm reluctant to tell you. I could write a book full of the most incredible stories you ever read about people that God got into New Spring the last year of their lives. 
And the reason I'm reluctant to tell you is some of you just came to New Spring and I don't want to scare you. But I'm serious. I mean, God must love this church. God must believe in what New Spring, what he's doing at New Spring. Because so many of you have said, well, I'm not sure I can evangelize. But I'm just going to say, come and see. Come to my church. I remember a man who owned a large business here in our city. He was probably about 50 years old. He had never been to church, not been a church guy at all. You guys would have to go way back in time. I think this was 2011. I was doing a series called Going Pro. Our stage looked, it was during the football playoffs. And so everything looked like NFL. Every week I was wearing a playoff jersey of a team. You guys know what I will do with a, for a series. I wore a Pittsburgh Steeler. I wore Troy, Troy Palomalu's jersey. I'm thinking, that's what I'll do for a series. A longtime Dallas Cowboy fan. Broke my heart to wear that, but it's important. You know what a friend said to him? My church, at my church, my pastor is wearing a football jersey every week. He said, I got to go see a church where the preacher would wear a football jersey. He came, he accepted Christ. I cannot begin to tell you how many of his friends he got to come. And I remember when he passed, his family said, Pastor, would you wear an Oakland Raider jersey as you preach his funeral? Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Hundreds, if not thousands of people have accepted Christ because a new springer said, just come and see, come and see. Number three, tell your story. Because a bunch of you, you got friends like I do. I got friends who are non-theists and, and, and they're, you know, they're scientists and all that kind of thing. And so it's like, well, what if I start talking about the Bible and they argue with me or they ask me questions I can't answer. Okay, always remember this. Just tell your story. People can disagree with your theology. They can't disagree with your story. One day, Jesus healed a blind man. And this blind man was a poor guy. He didn't have a degree in theology. But he healed this blind guy. caused him to be able to see. And the religious elite who hated Jesus, they came to this blind guy and they said, quit telling everybody that Jesus did this. It would take God to do this. This man, Jesus, is a sinner. Well, that was above this guy's theological pay grade. But here's what he said. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Every time you sing Amazing Grace, you sing his words. Okay, if you have an electronic device out or if you can take notes, you need to get it out real fast. And if you don't want to do it now, these will be on Facebook and they'll be online for you later. I want to give you verses from the Bible, just a few verses in the Bible where you can just keep with you. And if you want to show someone how they can be saved, you can take them to these verses, okay? Here we go. John three sixteen. you know this. God loved the world so much he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish from ever, but have everlasting life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world. Refer back to last week's message if you want to primer on that verse. So you can share that with people. This is the story. Here's the second thing that's important that people understand. We're all sinners and we need salvation. Romans chapter 3 verse 23. For everyone has sinned and come short of the glory of God. Here's the thing. You may be this close to perfection, I may be this far away, but we're all short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. Romans 3.10, there's no one righteous, not even one. I love Romans 6.23. I've led so many people to Christ with this verse. For the wages of sin is death. That's the, in other words, we're, we're all sinners. The paycheck for sin is death. That means separation from God. 
But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Salvation is a gift, and it always is a gift. How do you accept Christ? Romans 10, 9. If you will confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, remember the gospel? You will be saved. Now, you can do that. Couldn't you, couldn't you take those verses and show someone the good news? And then if they pray to receive Christ, I mean, you can lead them in the same prayer I lead you guys in every week. If they pray to receive Christ, then read Romans 10, 13. I say it to you all the time. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 13. Those are six scriptures. I memorized them when I was 10. Now, someone could say, Mark, I got hung up back there because I'm one of those people who believes that evangelism is wrong. I just still believe that. I want you to think about something for a moment. Let me give you a different construct that may help you work through this. Let's say you're going to college. You're getting ready to go to college. And you're really, really smart. And you don't just start getting student loans without knowing what you're getting into. And so you start looking into this degree program. You know the university. You know what the tuition costs, book costs, matriculation fees, room and board, and you determine that your degree program, your undergraduate degree program, is going to be $100,000. Okay? But while you're reading, you discover there's a foundation. And this foundation is giving a free ride for that degree program. And you're like, that's too good to be true. But you check it out. And it's not too good to be true. And you get, and, and sure enough, they commit to you. Full ride. Tuition, books, room and board, fees, free ride. What are you going to do about that with your friends who want to be part of the same program? I, I know already what you're going to do. You're going to text them or call them or get with them, you know, meet them at Starbucks, and you're going to say, I know it sounds too good to be true, but I got in on this. It's really true. And then the second thing is you're going to tell them what they need to do to qualify. You're going to tell them how to apply. And then if they're slow like me, you're going to say, you know what, I'll just come over to your apartment and I'll walk you through the process. I'll walk you through the application process. That's all evangelism is. I know it sounds too good to be true, but I got in on it. And here's all you have to do to be saved. And here's what you need to do to apply. And I'm going to bring these six verses over and I'm going to walk you through the application process. Does it still, still sound scary? Always remember this. The power is in the salvation. You don't have to supply the power. You just have to supply the good news. That's up to God and it's up to them. The power is in the salvation. Your helper is the Holy Spirit. Oh, could I have three minutes more? <laughs> Do you know that God can work in people's lives that you don't even believe he could work in? This story happened when I was 22. I was associate pastor of a church in Houston. It was an inner city church. And it was a difficult area, but I loved it. I loved the people. And after the service, one of the people who lived in a trailer uh, park uh, came to me and said, Pastor Mark, or Brother Hoover, as they call you in Texas, I said, our next door neighbor, he's an alcoholic. And he's drunk tonight, and his wife is just losing her mind. And is there any way you would come down and talk to her and talk to him? Because he's 
he just comes home drunk every night, and he's a mess. And I said, sure. I remember his name was Roel. And I walked up the steps of the mobile home, said hello to his wife, and she said, my husband is in there. And I walked into his room, and it looked like a sack of dirty laundry up against the wall, but it was Roel. He was filthy and drunk and I mean, way drunk. And he had his face to the wall. And I, I started talking to him. I was 22. I didn't have any better sense. And I said, Raul, my name is Mark Hoover, and I'm pastor of Bible Baptist Church, and I came to talk to you about Jesus. And he said, I don't want to hear about that. I said, well, would you let me just talk to you about it anyway? And I started telling him what I told you a moment ago. I said, it sounds too good to be true, but here's the deal that God is offering you. And he said, God could, and he's still facing the wall. He wasn't even facing me, just looking down, facing the covers. I could hear this voice, muffled voice coming out. God could not help me. And I said, of course he could. The Bible says in the book of 1 John that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's sin, cleanses from all sin, not my sin. I said, why not? He said, I'm a sheriff's deputy with Harris County. And he, he was Hispanic. I tell you that because he said, I abuse my own people. He said, there are people who come across the border to Houston. And he said, no one cares about them. No one even knows about them. He said, I keep a rubber hose in my car. And he said, I abuse my own people. He said, God could not forgive that. And I remember saying to him, if I were God, I would not forgive you for that. I said it to him. And I'm in it. I said, if I were God, that would be across the line. But I read here in the Bible that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. And I said, Raul, if you would get out of that bed and kneel down beside me right now, Jesus would forgive you of even that. And in one move, he just sort of flipped and rolled out of the bed and landed right on his knees next to me. And I led him in a prayer and he prayed to receive Christ. I would love to tell you I had great faith, but I didn't. Because he's so drunk. We stepped out. The first thing I said to Mary Alice when we walked out of that mobile home, I said, he won't even remember this tomorrow. And I sort of forgot about it. That was Wednesday night. I led worship in this church as well as being a social pastor. Next Sunday morning, I'm leading worship, and all of a sudden, you know, about, about halfway through the first song, in troops this family, this magnificently beautiful Hispanic family. They were like walking all the way down the front, but I remembered the sort of head of the family. He had on a black Western suit, absolutely perfect. I mean, beautiful white shirt and a bolo tie. And I mean, his hair slipped back. He looked like he could run for senator of Texas. And I thought, what a beautiful family. They walked in and sat right in the second pew from the front. And as I was leading the song, I watched as the man did this. And I thought to myself, could that be Raul? And it was. I baptized him that night. That's what God's grace can do. You, you don't have to be a genius. You just have to give people the good news. God will do all the rest. So here's an action point. I'm six minutes into overtime, even with a long sermon that I had extra time. Do you see how I can do that? Okay, here's two action points. Here's the first one. If you're if accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you've already followed the Lord in believer's baptism, by the way, just everybody do this. Somebody's going to, I believe the Holy Spirit's going to bring somebody's name to you. Write that name down. And you determine that you're going to do whatever it takes, 
either to invite that person to be part of New Spring with you or you're going to share good news with them. Because I just don't think that a, a real follower of Jesus Christ could walk out and not have anybody that they care about. You're going to care about somebody. Drill down, double down, decide. You're going to do what it takes to share the good news with that person. I really think one of the coolest things in heaven is going to be to be there and meet people that by the grace of God, we had an impact in their being in heaven. And now, many of us have heard today's message. And for the first time, just like Helen said in the baptism video, it's finally clear what baptism is. And you need to take that step. And even though you may be a Christ follower, it's like you need to get your baptism on the right side of your salvation. We are all primed and ready to help. We will assist you every way through this. So you won't be on your own. You won't be left to twist in the wind. We'll help you work through this process. What do you do if you need to take that step? We'll give you two options. Here's the one I would pick. Text watermark. That's one word. W-A-T-E-R-M-A-R-K. Text watermark to 97,000. And the material will be there for you. Or if you want even additional help and explanation, you can just get on our website and look at newspring.org slash baptism. And there's a way for you to get engaged there too. But take that step because here's the deal. Some of you are ready to do it right now. By the time you get home, the devil is going to say, uh, you can wait. That's the devil. You don't want to listen to him. Thank you for listening today. God bless. We'll see you very soon. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.